This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we're going to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on Beating the Odds, how news anchor and author Lisa Thomas-Laurie built a phenomenal career as a pioneering newscaster and then leveraged the same qualities that got her there to wrestle with a rare and disabling illness and its complex impact on her life. We're going to be taking calls, of course, and our phones are open, 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Join in the conversation, ask Lisa questions, and tell us what's on your mind. We'd really love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Before we get started, though, I just have to talk to you for a minute about something that's on my mind. Um, It's today's news. You know, we're living in a country where an accused sexual predator is still on the ballot for a Senate seat in Alabama. But fortunately, NBC and PBS took the high road, and they did it by firing two roundly beloved men, Matt Lauer and Garrison Keillor. They took these strong public acts where there were and and really did something important. They acted swiftly. They acted boldly. But in addition to the actions that they took, there are a few other important things that I want to acknowledge. First of all, thank you to all the courageous women coming forward. To all of you who are going to, to all of you who have, we know that it's scary and it's important what you're doing. So thank you. And I'd also like to thank the organizations that are finally listening to them. Next, I have to shout out to Savannah Guthrie. She did a remarkable job today of sharing the news with us. She said what we were all feeling when you discover that someone you love and trust has done something heinous. With tears in her eyes, she shared her affection for Matt and the difficulty she had in processing the information. And then, really importantly, underscored how crucial it is to ensure that work is a safe place for everyone. I know I was struck, uh, Laura, when she when she not only talked about her feelings for Matt, but she also talked about that woman, whoever she is, who came forward. Yes. Thank you. And our hearts go out to you, and thank you for being so courageous in doing something like that. Hoda Copy, of course, agreed. You know, she's loved yes. this man, worked with him for 15 years. And how do you reconcile that it- with with someone who's done something this egregious? So it is just just a difficult place to be in. I can't tell you how shocked I was when I woke up this morning and heard that Matt Lauer was fired. I wondered right away how many women came forward when I heard there was one woman. Right. You know, the details aren't out yet. Yeah, uh, and there's got to be more. But then, I don't know if you... By the way, the voice you're hearing, (laughs) that familiar voice for any of you who live in Philadelphia, is Lisa Thomas-Laurie. So welcome to Women at Work, Lisa. Delighted to be here. Delighted. Did you also notice, or was it just um, that I was tuning into it, there were so many women on the news this morning. Yes. It wasn't just that Hoda was in Matt's seat. Right. I saw... For sequence after sequence, particularly on the Today Show, mm-hmm. powerful women anchors in yes. front of the White House giving us the news this yes. morning. Yes. And so it was the other thing that made me feel like NBC was doing something right. Exactly. So, exactly. well, as we were saying when we came in, I am increasingly sad, 
but sadly unsurprised mm-hmm. at how many stories we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really buoyed by two of these key things that I think are essential to changing the landscape. Men holding mm-hmm. other men accountable, mm-hmm. not letting them get away with it, mm-hmm. and more women being given a voice. Exactly, exactly. So on that note, can I introduce you? (laughs) Yes, please do. (laughs) Because Lisa Thomas-Laurie is a woman who has used her voice to help us understand the world we live in and give other people power for decades. Um, Lisa Thomas-Laurie has recently come out with this amazing book, On Camera and Off, When the News is Good and When It's Not. Um, But she's a retired television news anchor, well known to listeners here in the Philadelphia area. For 38 years, she was one of the most familiar faces on television as an anchor and a reporter for Channel. Channel 6 Action News on WPVI-TV. And that's our ABC affiliate for those of you who live elsewhere. Right. Um, You covered the stories Mm. of everyday people around the region, political elections, conventions, everyone from Ted Kennedy to Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. (laughs) And then in 2001, Lisa was struck with a really rare nerve disorder. Right, right. And that's really what the book is about, isn't it? A lot of the book is about that. Um, I, I try to, I try not to make it so medically intensive, um, um, intrinsic, or I, I should say, I try to weave my younger years and some of my career in with the medical part. The medical part is very important, though, because what I learned when I was ill. There's so many people out there trying to navigate our health system, mm-hmm. and it is difficult. You know, I'm an educated woman. I feel I was a health reporter for many, many years in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Philadelphia. I'm married to a doctor, and we still didn't get it right. We couldn't figure it out. It took us almost two years before I got an exact definitive um, uh, uh, prognosis, diagnosis, it it was just a, a a very difficult task, and just the paperwork. I remember sitting, <laughs> I remember sitting trying to when you're not feeling well, when you have a chronic illness, and you're trying to fill out fill out the mounds of paperwork that come with an illness. It's you know some people need help. I needed help. And, and this is coming from somebody who you were you live in one of the best medical communities in the world. Exactly. You um, continue to be, and certainly then were extremely well known. So if anybody was likely to get a little VIP treatment, it was you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated that little VIP treatment when I was down in Florida and got really ill, and um, it, it, it was it was tough. But you know. I actually, what I reveal in the book is that I had an accurate diagnosis Mm -hmm. rather fast in about three weeks from a a, a very good friend of uh, my husband's, his mentor in medical school, a Dr. Edgar Kenton. And unfortunately, he was leaving Lankanaw Hospital, where I had both of my sons, where there are marvelous doctors. He was leaving to go do research down at Morehouse in Atlanta. And he couldn't follow me. I couldn't be his patient. He referred me to two other doctors who he thought would take care of the problem. One was um, a hematologist, oncologist, because he felt my problem was an underlying blood disorder. And um, a neurologist at Johns Hopkins. So two very good facilities. Um, The the chief of neurology down at uh, Johns Hopkins for the the symptoms that were presenting themselves at the, mm-hmm. at the time, and that was the the polyneuropathy in my legs, the strange sensations, and for whatever reason, those two doctors put their head to, heads together in about a month and dismissed that um, diagnosis and and went on with something 
an autoimmune illness called CIDP. That led me on about a two-year. And you were treated for the wrong illness for that whole time. For the entire time. I'd like to back up a little bit. Sure. So, um, because also in the book you do this. It's wonder. I loved how you laid out, um, walked us through how you became a newscaster. Yeah. Yeah. And I I can't believe that you, in the book, you said you were, what, nine years old? I was nine years old. (laughs) And you knew this was your destiny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us about the moment when you knew this. Well, you know, it's funny because I found myself, the first thought in my mind was watching this wonderful newscaster for 15 minutes. We didn't see women on television back then very often. And... I said, I had to ask myself, it was so long ago, I I said, I remember I was in third grade, I was in Miss Thompson's class, and I remember that little TV on the shelf, and I remember watching a Lisa Howard. I was Lisa Howard then. And that was your original name. Right, right. And I watched this beautiful blonde woman give the news, and I would be teased. I said, now, is that real? So... Now you can Google everything. I mean, teased by all your friends my, in school, right? Sure, the, my classmates. You know, you're, you know, they they began suggesting that I'm going to take her place, and I'm Lisa Howard, so I'm destined to be a, a, a broadcaster. But I found myself googling it and finding out more about this woman who anchored the news for 15 minutes during that it was the news hour uh, with Lisa Howard, but it was really 15 minutes that she was on. And I was just, uh, I was struck by w- what she was doing. And I always loved to write as far as I, as long as I could remember, I loved to write. In fact, I was producing plays in school and presenting <laughs> them and casting myself as the lead and, and the other classmates in the play. And I, I felt that I would do something very similar to that, if not that very thing, if I could pursue it. So you noted in the book how you made your own, your own clothes, you were good with your hands, your father mm-hmm. actually raised you. My grandfather. Your, your grandfather was mm-hmm. a real value for what you right. could do with right. your hands. He always said what a, a person's worth is you know, judged by what they can do with their hands. And, and he so, built homes in the area. So what was your journey into college and the selection of journalism as a major? Okay. Um, well, I, I did everything I could with uh, reading and writing in grade school. I remember the day that my father gave me my first thesaurus, and I, I sat down with it like it was a chatty Cathy doll <laughs> and just, you know, went over all the words. And just as it was, I was just mesmerized by how many different words there were that meant the same thing. And that love of writing and reading and literature took me about 10, 15 minutes away to Dunbar High School, where I, I um, you know, I took the regular courses, but I also joined the newspaper and was fashion editor and um, uh, with the, the, was it the Dunbar Gazette? I'm trying to think. Anyway, the Bulldog newspaper? I can't you remember wrote one the one was time. the Colonel? Or the, the kennel. The kennel, exactly. Thank you. You remember <laughs> better than I did, Laura. It was you know, the Dunbar Kennel. So I was a feature reporter and fashion editor with the, the kennel. And as I approached my senior year, I began, I began to look for scholarships, and, and I entered a scholarship program that Marshall University um, in the southern portion of the state was offering. And I end up, ended up winning that scholarship as the most promising journalist in the state. Uh, I can't remember how many essay questions or what, would, what it entailed. But um, I, had, I had worked um, 
with various publications and had submitted work and just loved writing. Let me ask you something. and reporting. So many women, Mm -hmm. even starting early as young women or, you know, girls on the way to womanhood, we're given opportunities and we run away from them because we're afraid of them. But it sounds like as these opportunities were put in front of you, you just jumped at them. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. Was it that you brought with you a self-confidence? You know, I I think back about that, Laura. I think think that actually came from my father. He always instilled in all of us. I was the uh, only girl, the oldest, three younger brothers, and he always told us, "You, you know, you can do anything you want to do. And he always tried to... Uh, encourage us to to get out of Institute. He said, don't spend your life in Institute. Because where you lived was Institute, West Virginia. It was Institute, West Virginia, a small little unincorporated town, 2,500 people. And it was, you know, it was a town full of chemical plants. And I talk about that in the mm-hmm. book because we, my doctors and I circled back around to see if perhaps some of those chemical plants may have spewed out something that lay latent in my system, and that was the reason I right. was sick, it was, you know, 20, 25 years later. Something Still like entirely me. plausible. Yeah, exactly, the doctors always said. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the amazing Lisa Thomas-Laurie, who's here in the studio with us. Um, she's a retired television news anchor and author of On Camera and Off, When the News is Good and When It's Not. If you'd like to join in the conversation, ask Lisa about her journey to this point in her life, um, please give us a call at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So I want to go back to something. You mentioned yeah. you had you, a few younger brothers. Yeah. And when you went to school, you joined the sorority. Oh, yeah, in college. <laughs> now, were you just, did you know you were looking for sisters? Were you looking for a group of women? What pulled you to it? I, I have to admit, what pulled me to it was the sister of the brother who actually changed my life. Bill Dotson was an upperclassman. He suggested when my grant ran out, my second semester freshman year, that I try out to be a weather girl at the local NBC affiliate, WSAZ-TV. And um, his sister encouraged me as well, Angela Dotson. She's actually married to Michael Days uh, in Philadelphia. And I know you, you know that name with the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily, Daily News. And she was... Um, she was uh, um, elite in her field, very good journalism uh, student. So I, I decided to be um, to try out for the weather girl position. <laughs> it wasn't anything like today's meteorologist, mind ask you. you. It, cause, no, because I noticed that today they're meteorologists. Right. So the and. Most of them are beautiful women, if they're not, you know, well-groomed men. But yeah. they actually have degrees in meteorology, in meteorology. now. That's right. correct. And that's fairly right? recent. You know, I remember when when Cecily Tynan came to Channel 6, she started that whole thing with the meteorological, you know, degree, and I want to be known for that. And I can remember there was a little resistance because until then, the men, the women were all weather people, weather guys and gals. And that's basically what I did back then. I had to know the the map, you know, of the United States. I had to know a low pressure and a high pressure and, you know, various things about the weather, not nearly as much as what they know today. But it became a real powerful industry because we we need to know so much about the weather for what we do. And the weather takes up a great deal of a newscast today, oh, much it's more in, than it used to. I'm watching it for the weather so I know how to get dressed yes. and, you know, 
all that kind of stuff. What's it also, when you mentioned it as one of the steps on your path, <clears throat> it made me think it must have been a great way to get on-air experience. For a lot of women. Um, Diane Sawyers was a weather girl in Kentucky. Really? Yeah, that's the tri-state area there where I grew up. She started as a weather girl. Many of us back in the 70s and the early 80s started as weather girls because that's the job we could get at the time. Worked our way up into news and exactly what I did. Um, How how did you – tell me about how you stepped over that threshold. Let's see. Well, I remember there was a young woman who was in news, and I learned uh, at the time I was doing the weather – I was in college, so I was doing everything part-time. But this young woman, I remember her name was Debbie, and I cannot think of her her um, last name. But she was in news, and she was very, very good, and I learned as much as I could from her. Because we were both women, I think there was a camaraderie there. She wanted, she wanted to teach me. And um, she talked to the news director and got him to give me a shot at doing a little bit of filming, you know, and these we, we had the little small handheld cameras back then, and I would go out and film a little story. It might be something very small that would be 30 seconds on the news, but I would film it, and I would write it, and sometimes I would put my voice to it. So I did that in my spare time. I would, you know, uh, during the week when I finished my studies at Marshall until they offered me a position as um, as a news reporter. I can remember... The first really meaty story I got, it was a, a two-part story on the wastewater treatment facility <laughs> in Huntington. And I got high praise for that project from the news director, Boz Johnson, at the time. And I can remember how rewarding that was, you know, because I, I could tell you everything about that treatment plant. <laughs> but also part of what you're making visible to us is that we see you and lots of other professional people on the news who are poised, well-spoken, well-dressed, but we're not, we don't always give those same people credit for actually crafting the stories that the, we're hearing. The background. And, and that's, that is the difference today. I am very, I feel very fortunate that I came up at a time where we did a lot of the work behind the scenes as well as the on-camera presentation because I learned when when you learn about editing and I'm talking about film editing <laughs> right actually cutting yeah, it and splicing, and splicing it splicing together it. You're going not to the metaphor ed- in right, a digital realm right exactly Laura um, when I was in Oklahoma City and that was my first job right after uh, college we we worked in pairs then, as did a, a lot of news reporters at the time. And I was teamed with a, a, a young man named Dave Smith. We would go out, and he would have a CP-16 camera, which was about three times the size of the one I used in Huntington, West Virginia. He would shoot my story. I would, I would be assigned a story, and he would shoot it. And then we'd put it in the can, you know. It would be there with the film. And then I we would go to his location. I would heave that big camera on my shoulder and shoot his story. So I had to learn how to operate a television video camera. And then we would both go back to the studio and, you know, retreat to the the editing room, and we would literally splice and glue the film to match what we were, the words we were going to put to it, so it would air on the evening news. But then, what came out on the news was really, <clears throat> it, you, it was almost like was, you were making short documentary films in a right, way. Right, right. You were right. the storytelling, crafting every part of it. Exactly. When what I what I learned later, 
and how that helped me tremendously was when I went to my first O&O station, Union Station, wasn't, when I wasn't allowed to edit or do any of that. I had a job. I collected the story. I wrote it. Someone else edited it, and I put my voice to it. But I learned what the editor anticipated and expected because I had done it. Did you like that shift, or did you miss it? I, I missed it a little bit. I missed it at first. And I always missed reporting. Even, you know, the, the, the big goal, the big prize is to be an anchor right. on a primetime show. And that's where the money is. But at the same time, it can, it can get a little boring, you know. You're, you're reading. And when I first started out, I, I had trouble with pronouncing names. And they wanted yeah, to... Yeah, there is no trace that you grew up in West Virginia <laughs> in your voice. When my, when my baby brother comes to town, there is. <laughs> when my baby brother comes. And he's in Texas now. So he's got the Texas and the Appalachian twang. But, um, no, it... it 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 got a little boring, and I just you know I hungered for 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 being able to go out and be around people and put something together like a little documentary. Lisa, when you were doing this, mm-hmm. there were a lot of things about what you were doing that were uncommon. To have a woman making media this way, right? With you know doing your own camera work and editing and being a field reporter, right. and also a black woman. Oh yeah, yeah, the double minority. Was a big thing back in, let's see, when I got my first job, when I was hired in Philadelphia, uh, I guess is when, when, it, when it all came to fruition for me, um, the FCC had uh, cracked down on local television stations. They wanted to see more women on the air, and at the same time, excuse me, there was a push to have minorities on the air, black women, black and men. And what year was this? this Early seventies. Yeah, that's would have been mid seventies. Now, nineteen seventy-six. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had met a young woman by that time who had just left Nashville. Uh, she was there when I came for my um, for for my interview. Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> and she she was a marvel. Even then. You could tell. Oh, yeah. I sat on the edge of my bed that night uh, before I went in for the interview, and she was anchoring the weekend news. And I remember just being so in awe because there was this presence about her and her voice. Oh, yeah. She was phenomenal, and she was solo anchoring. And I just couldn't believe it. I said, I wonder if I'll get a chance to meet her. Before I leave. Well, she's the first person I saw when I walked in the next morning. And we hit it off right away, talking about everything. We were born the same year. She in January of 1954, I in July. And we had a a lot in common. She had gone to Girls State in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had been chosen for Girls State in West Virginia. And uh, we talked about, of course, the boyfriends. And I stayed with her that night. She invited me to stay before I went back to Oklahoma and had and, and revealed to me that she was hoping to get a, a co-anchor job in Baltimore. And she was she by the time I got the job as education reporter, she had already left for her stint in Baltimore WJZ. And we all know now that didn't work out as well <laughs> as she wanted and but it was her demotion at that station. When they put her on the talk show, the, the I think it was Good Morning Baltimore, where she found her niche. Oh, you know, did she ever? Yeah, that was that was her calling, and you know the rest is history. But it it was just phenomenal. 
there was, meeting her. It must have been. There was something <clears throat> that you talked about um, in that section of the book that mm-hmm. um, I had imagined has to be the case in some places. And you talked about um, the question of whether... Race? Yeah, but, mm-hmm. but not just race. Are you black enough? Are you too black? Right. And right. how that was an issue in finding work in different markets. Yes. What was the experience that you were having at that time? Well, the experience that I had was um, stations were were slow to move, you know, um, when the FCC started uh, at re- first asking, then demanding <laughs> that more women be present on the airwaves. And stations like Philadelphia, I'll be quite honest, they were cautious about who they put on their evening news. And usually those first jobs went to the noon news and whatever. But Oprah had actually interviewed for the same position. I didn't learn until later that she was turned down. And it dawned on me, I, I said, wow, she's anchored before. I've never really anchored. I've done these morning cut-ins. I think I can do it, but I certainly don't have the experience. But it became quite obvious that they wanted someone who wouldn't offend the audience. Philly has a pretty bad track record of poor race relations when you go back to... Especially at that point in time. At that, at that time in the, in the 19, early 1970s. You go back to Jackie Robinson and, you know, <clears throat> segregation in and, and baseball and sports. Uh, so it was, the city wasn't so quick to accept change, that type of change, uh, on the air, and I'm sure stations were leery. They wanted to keep maintaining their ratings. So I'm here I am, a young black girl. I don't look so black. I could be Italian. I could be Jewish. I could be, you know, whatever, Latino. And uh, sure enough, the ethnicity was a question when I first came on board. But Oprah and I did talk about it. And she she knew, and I knew. And uh, I, I was glad that we had a chance to be genuine with one another and she knew why she didn't get it. She knew the history of Philadelphia. But same same scenario in Washington, D.C., I am convinced I was turned away for a job because people would be confused about what I was. They wanted to, they wanted to place a black woman on their 5 o'clock news. I didn't have the experience. Plus, I think there was concern, as one executive producer told me, you know, you don't look black enough. You know, they want a brown girl. <laughs> So there like, you damned go. Damned if you do, damned right. if you don't. But it reinforces how much of it were marketing decisions. Exactly. And it probably continues to be. Yeah, but not to that degree, but But of particularly course. poignant yes. in that era. Um, we're going to take a break shortly. But after the break, Lisa and I are going to continue discussing her book, her journey. And we'd love to take your questions at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on C. Sirius XM 111. And by the way, if while we're on break, you want to send an email to Patty, she'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. You can reach her at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Thanks so much. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we are talking with the marvelous Lisa Thomas-Laurie, author of 
on camera and off when the news is good and when it's not. Not to mention retired anchor, um, uh, you know, Channel 6 here in Philadelphia, ABC Action News. So, Lisa, before the break, we were talking about these kind of complicated, ironic experiences that you were having when you were starting to emerge into a major market. And where the color of your skin mm-hmm. was sometimes important to getting hired and sometimes the reason why you weren't. Right. Exactly. As a black woman coming into these kinds of environments, super professional, right. you know, and you wrote extensively and have talked about the wonderful team of people that you worked with. Right. Along the way, where were there moments where you encountered challenges that you weren't expecting and how did you navigate them? Yeah, you know, there was one incident that, that, that came to mind, and um, it had to do with a colleague at, at Channel 6 that I um, I shared an office with for a while. And he he was very, um, he was very interested in my background and, um, and, and my ethnicity. And at one point in our conversation, because he had met my mother when she came to help me move at Channel 6, and my mother is very fair. I, mean, I have pictures of her in the book. I mean, she, she could easily be mistaken for white. Her brother um, actually passed as white and lives in San Francisco because it was much easier. Imagine in the 30s and 40s. If you could, you... At that time, he decided you, to do that. You would. Um, but I remember him asking me, why did you choose to be black? And I never expected anyone to, to answer that. I mean, to ask me that. And I said, well, it, I, I never thought of it any other way. I grew up black. I went to all black grade schools and, and not high school or anything. But that was that is who I am. That is who my parents are. I said, even my mother... Um, he said, are you sure your mother, I remember him asking me, are you sure your mother's black? I said, <laughs> I said, well, actually, yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I had to remind him of the one drop rule. I said, did you ever hear about the one drop rule during slavery time? You know, one drop. I said, we never questioned it. You know, we're here we are in a land that we don't know too well. Um, our, you know, our, her, her, uh, ancestors were slaves, and at some point, she was she was born, and we know the circumstances with that, with the slave owners and the mixing of the races. I said, but uh, she had to live with that, and she was proud of who she was as a woman. My mother's mother is just as fair as she was. She was um, she was a slave, and and so your and grandmother had, was a slave. Yeah. Yeah, my mother's mother. She was the last generation. And she, um, when, the, when the slave owner's wife died, she took up residence in the house and performed the wifely duties that his, his, um, his wife had performed. And she bore him six or seven children. Wow. So that, that, that is our history. That is just a fact of, of, of what America has been. I said, so I never thought that I would... I would, would try to be someone I, I wasn't. I said, my uncle doing that to me denied a part of us. But I mean, whenever we go visit him, you know, there's a book, Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. the Thomas Jefferson, that explains it so well. And those children of hers who decided to pass as white, 
denied in some degree her existence by doing so. And so you, you have the question of that, but and it also, never dawned on me that well, I would Because be... also you're denying a part of yourself. Exactly. Which is self-negating. And I don't know how you live with that. Right. Some people, you know, felt they didn't have another way. But, um, I, you know, it wasn't something that came up often. But, and then there, you know, there, there were times when I was confronted with the affirmative action. You know, do you think you'd have this job if there weren't affirmative action? And I'd have to deal with that a little bit. But um, I said, I'm very happy for the opportunity, and I'm just here to prove myself that, that I'm worthy of this. And also what women, mm-hmm. at least white women that I've talked to, mm-hmm. about what are the, when you were given an opportunity because you were a woman. Right. You worked doubly hard. Exactly. Exactly. So you had to have worked triply oh, hard. yes, yes. Because the stakes, if you failed, were that much greater. Exactly, yeah. You're put in this situation. The FCC is demanding, wants to see more women. So you've got to do your job, and you've got to do it better than that man next to you. You've Be- got to work harder than that, that young man next to you. So that's the way I always felt, and that's the way I always went about um, my work. But uh, for the most part, it it was a, a wonderful ride here. It was, <laughs> you know, I made some good friends, and you know, I, I have. If I could go back just a minute to what we were just discussing earlier with Matt Lauer mm-hmm. and and the, the the sexual predators and what's going on. If if you think back when even you, Laura, started in your business, we 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 have sexual sensitivity classes now where you have people learn what's acceptable and what's unacceptable behavior in the workplace. But I can certainly think, especially in a newsroom and when I talk to my husband, between doctors and nurses, there's a, 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 there's a fine line between what's accepted and what's not accepted. I remember comments made to me that if they were made today would be considered crossing the line. Absolutely Something, actionable. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I was once and asked I, if I was going to be in a – I was um, – I was the associate provost at a school. Uh-huh. I was, I had responsibilities for the academic programs. I was in graduation in my cap and gown, mm-hmm. helping to you know graduate the students. And a colleague asked me if I was on stage because I was jumping out of a cake. <laughs> oh gosh! Oh, how insulting! I yeah. know. Do you think they even realized that it was no. insulting? No, and that wasn't even the kind of sexual harassment right. and, and predatory behavior that's really rampant. undermining and rampant. Mm-hmm. And you're right. We we all started at a time when we've seen there wasn't awareness and there wasn't respect and there right. wasn't an understanding of how debilitating it was, how it took your power away when exactly. people did things like this. Because I remember when I when I thought about Matt Lauer and all that's going on right now with our president, I said, yeah, I, re- I remember how that used to make me feel. There was a comment that someone I work with at another television station you know, was made by a man, and I'll go ahead and tell you, every time I pass by him, why don't you come and sit on my face? Oh, my God. That used to get to me. It would, it would, it would get into my subconscious, you know, for him. I said, you know, get out of here. Leave me alone. But that would not be accepted today. No. And And it really, really affected my work, you know, albeit a short time. But you know, you, you don't want to be around that person. It's uncomfortable. It's not a good work environment. And um, Lisa, I think by how far sharing we've come. That, we have, but by sharing that, you're giving language to something that I don't think a lot of 
um, that men certainly don't understand. Right. Many, not all. Right. But that I also think a lot of women don't understand, which is that when you receive those kinds of insults and assaults, mm-hmm. verbal or physical, it hurts. It takes something away from you, right. and it puts something in you that steals your confidence exactly. and steals your strength from you. It's such a wonderful way to interpret it. Yes, it does. It just zaps it. How did you recover from these things? How did you find yourself and move on? Well, you know, I, I, I remember sharing it with my mom and, 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 and my father at one point. And my father said, get in his face. Let him know. You don't appreciate that. Don't talk to me that way. When I did that, I, you know, because you, 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 you don't want to do things to alienate yourself when you're new on a job. And, you know, you want to make friends. You want everybody to be able to work with you. So you're reluctant, you know, to push back. But you have to. When I would push back, I would lose that person as a, a comrade for a while. But sometimes you didn't want to have them as right. a comrade. But oftentimes they would be people you would need. Yes. You know, you would need along the way and would would have been helpful. There was one man who was very helpful to me, but he would make those types of comments. And I said, you know, don't do that to me. I don't want to hear that type of talk. And I just said to it to him personally, he never did it again. And he was a little distant for a while, you know, a little standoffish. But it was fine after that. Now, you're pointing out a couple of things. Like, not only did were you able to find a graceful way right. to and combat you, it, but that there's a risk in confronting it. Exactly. And I didn't always find a graceful way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't always find a graceful way. <laughs> but uh, I, I, can, I can't even imagine today being subjected to something like that, like women who are, who are reporting their stories today. You know, men exposing themselves, inviting you to watch them take a shower. I mean, it happened it's, to me when I had my very first job. Mm-hmm. I was 15 years old. I'd gone to the local deli because I had heard, if you're a waitress, you will make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I can learn to be a waitress. With no experience, he hired me on the spot, mm-hmm. put me to work right then, um, wanted me to go down to the basement to get a pile of pickles. And as I'm going up the steps, he's grabbing my behind. And sends me home with, like, a turkey for the family. Yeah. A whole turkey. Yeah. And I'm just so rattled. And I, and I can't pro- – I'm 15 years old. Oh, I don't know what's going on. Exactly. And I told – and my parents at the dinner table were like, something's oh. up. What's going on? And I told them. And um, I, it's, I still sort of marvel at this. I, I'm not, still not mm-hmm. sure if it was good or bad. But they said to me, you have to go confront him. Right. And I was terrified. I don't know if as a parent I would say that to my daughter I would go with her. Right. But – I had to walk in there the next day. I didn't sleep at all that night. I was terrified. I didn't know what he'd do. I certainly wasn't going to discuss it with him in the basement. Right. There were other people kind of around on the periphery. And I found a way to say, I think you hired me to be more than a waitress. Mm. And he laughed and winked and said, yes, I did. And I said, well, I'm not I'm here not for that. that. Right. And um, he gave me my pay and I left and I never saw him again. Uh. You but know. it was it was terrifying, especially as a young girl. I didn't even understand what was really happening. Right. But thank God you could go to your parents, you know. Yes. You could go to someone and discuss it. But think about all the but women who the, can't. Who can't or who don't think they can. Or who aren't believed. Right. All right. So this kind of courage that you exhibit, that's been part, it's clearly part of you since you were a little girl. It's also been a big part of you as you've, you went through your career, and as this illness started to emerge, and as you were starting to combat it, and the way you're sharing your story with everybody else, 
So I want to tune into that okay. for a few minutes mm-hmm. while we've got some time. Um, and by the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Series <laughs> XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm just so delighted talking with Lisa Thomas-Laurie that I forgot to tell you who we are. Um, she's a retired television news anchor and author of On Camera and Off, When the News is Good and When It's Not. So, Lisa, where were you in your where were you in your career where you started to have these weird sensations in your feet and legs? It was 2001. I was at the height of my career. You know, things were just beautiful. I was at the height of my career. I was in the best health and the best shape of my life. At that time, I I was working out and my boys were older. One was getting, my oldest son was getting ready to go to college. My younger son was much more self-sufficient and I was looking forward to being an empty nester. And uh, I, ha- I had a woman who would come and do uh, power walking with me after I would work out after they would go to school every day. And um, I just started noticing some, I had had a virus. I, had, I remember being sick for a couple of weeks, just couldn't get rid of this little bug or whatever it was, took antibiotics, went to the doctor as usual. And then um, shortly after that, I started getting strange tingling sensations and pins and needles in my feet, uh, the most you know distal part of my body, the, my toes especially. And then after a while, it became harder to go up those inclines, power walking with uh, Bobby, my trainer. And my my legs were weaker. My husband sent me to a right away to a neurologist. They did an ENG, a nerve conduction study. And it showed that my ankles were 30% weaker than they should be. Now the question was, why? What's right. going on here? Oh, my. You know, we went to an, um, another neurologist who thought I might have little tiny ganglions. They're little tumors that can sometimes get in between your toes or in your feet. And he gave me steroid shots for that. Nothing worked. Um, and, and, and that's about around the third or fourth week I got to Dr. Kenton and he did a couple of days of workup blood and we realized that my platelets were off the chart and so therefore there was a um, there was a blood plasma cell dyscrasia component to this and he strongly believed I had this strange illness very rare called Poems syndrome it's an acronym And he explained it to us. The P was for polyneuropathy, what I was experiencing. The O was organomegaly for large organs. I didn't have that yet. The E was for the endocrine system, some type of change. I was a little bit, um, what do you you call it? There's hypo and hyper. um, Glycemia? Glycemia. I was showing signs of the hypoglycemia. And M was the blood component, the monoclonal, monoclonal gammopathy, and then the skin changes. And that was where my skin was had a strange hue to it. It was sort of a grayish, bluish hue. And um, so I, I had three. We're pretty sure I had three uh, symptoms of uh, the five. And he said, I'd like to follow that. He says, I've seen it only five times in my career. One thing this doctor did that I couldn't seem to get other doctors to do was to admit he wasn't sure. That's so interesting. That is very interesting because there's a chapter in the book, I call it Egos Get in the Way. Doctors' Egos Get in the Way. 
I have found that many doctors, rather than say, I don't know enough about this, but let me send you to someone I think may. But let's get data. Yeah. Let's, do, let's, let's, let's research this. We were researching it. He already, they already had it handed to them on a silver platter with my first doctor. Right. And we asked many, many times for them to return to that diagnosis and look at it again because I felt I wasn't getting better. Oftentimes, it was very difficult to determine that when you're on steroids. They mask symptoms. Oh, right. So you're not getting make, all the information. Yeah, they make you feel really good and strong some days. So we went back and forth with that until my vocal cord was shut down. My digestive tract was affected. I couldn't, you know, digest food. When it started to get into my internal organs, um, a doctor here had been encouraging me a few months prior to get to the Mayo Clinic. There was a woman doctor out there. So this was going to be your first woman doctor in this process? No. Okay. Dr. Terry Heinemann Patterson at HUP was on the path to telling me. She was agreeing with us. I had I had seen her. It's a strange little twist in that I I write in the book. Todd McCullough was a 76er Mm -hmm. who was having some strange symptoms in his legs and feet that forced him off the basketball court. He couldn't play anymore. His doctor had told him he had CIDP. They thought we both had the same illness. We put our heads together. He was seeing Dr. Hyman Patterson at the time and introduced me to her, and we both started comparing notes. We were both sure that she was on the right track, but we weren't convinced that we had both had CIDP. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so both of us ended up finding out exactly what was going on. But, you know, we went in different directions. But Todd was very helpful because his symptoms were different than mine. And they finally found, they discovered that um, his was a Charcot-Marie tooth. I mean, you know, they're, named, they're always named These after the doctors names, right? who, 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 who come up with it. But his mother had come to visit, and she had some similar symptoms in her feet. And there was a, a, a strange curvature to her foot that took on the same form. And so, so they could see that it was genetic. They saw that it was genetic. During, mm-hmm. As you described this time mm-hmm. of the, both the anguish of what you were going through physically right. and the emotional anguish, anguish of not knowing, not knowing and not being able to get control of it, you, there was also mm-hmm. certain points that really struck me where it seemed like part of the problem was that you weren't being listened to and you didn't feel listened to like you even told it was a little thing but the story of getting your blood taken and a nurse not listening and acknowledging that you know about your own body right i know that i have small veins and that i need a butterfly needle and I'm a tough stick, and yeah, little things. And you like told that. her, and you even knew to say, "I'm even dehydrated. It's yeah. going to be hard." Yeah. And they wouldn't listen. Right. But then you went to the Mayo Clinic. Right. And that was very and different. It was very, very different. I, I call it marvelous Mayo, <laughs> because um, the training is different. I mean, the people are just different. They not only listen to the patients, but they, um, they're just kind-hearted. You know, they. They empathize with with what you have gone through, extremely thorough. And, uh, you know, of course, there's some small exceptions uh, here and there. But when I finally made it to Dr. Dispensieri, this little, I remember when I met her, I I felt, boy, she's been working hard all day. She's not concerned about her hair being in place, you know, very little makeup, if if any. But when she gets an answer, she's going to put it to you straightforward. 
And she said to my husband and I, she said, you have poems, you've had it all along, it's shutting you down, but we can get you back healthy again with a bone marrow transplant, a stem cell transplant. You're too weak now, I'm going to send you home, build you up, when you come back you'll have it. It was so she had the the solution. She identified the problem. She knew where I was in the process of being able to get that solution, and she knew when we could be able we would be able to do it. When you described that whole period of time, mm-hmm. also there was something about the way that you described the Mayo Clinic, mm-hmm. and I want to share some of those details because it's interesting sure. when we think about workplace cultures and right. environments, and where are we listen to, and where are we value, and where are all the levels where it matters. Right. Like you described the Mayo Clinic as gorgeous. Yes. With great art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know, the, Laura, the first time I went, I was coming, uh, it was on the heels of a horrible trip to Florida where I had gotten sick. I had been in the hospital in Naples, Florida, where no one knew me. I was in the emergency room five or six hours. And miserable. And, and miserable. And just, it, it was a um, a male nurse. And I. And one of these days, I hope I can remember his name. He was a godsend. Because not only did he figure out that I was allergic to the painkiller I was getting, Dilaudid, but he was just so nice to me. You know, he'd come in and rub my back. And Is he the one who braided your hair? He braided you? my hair. <laughs> he was just a great guy. <laughs> and I remember sending him this big basket of, what do you, what do you call them, incredible edibles, fruit, <laughs> or something, thanking him afterwards. And and, none, and I couldn't find his name in any of the notes. I even called down to the hospital. But one day I will. Maybe the second print of the book I'll Right, I'll or if you're listening there. out there. Yeah, if you're <laughs> listening, please let me know your name because he made all the difference. But sure enough, the doctors stopped, you know, took me off of that Dilaudid and gave me another painkiller. And it, it was much better, you know. Everything went away. I had to go to – it took a while to get strong enough to go home – and then my husband and I knew we've got to make this trip to the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, people ask, why didn't you go sooner? Well, at the time, you know, we thought we thought that our doctors would get to the right place with it. We didn't know how long it would take. We weren't sure exactly how long we should give them. As my condition began to deteriorate, then I stepped up the process. Well, because then it became urgent. It, it became, became very urgent. And so- I'm just, you don't want to go through those same tests and start all over when you think you might be on the road. It turns out Terry Hyman Patterson was listening, and she treated me with respect. She treated my husband with respect, and um, we, we, we just had to go to the Mayo Clinic before she figured it out. She hadn't had that many patients who had poems. Right, because it was so such, such a, a rare, rare thing. Illness. So in the three minutes we have left, there's another important part of the story that's another testimony to your courage and your honesty, which is that you lived with a lot of pain for a long time, right? and you took some pills to yeah. manage that pain Yeah, that happened to be opioids. Exactly. So can you tell um, us kind of the arc of what you went through? Yeah. And obviously how you got to the other side. Yeah. Well, you know, I was concerned right off the bat that I might develop. I knew that they were highly addictive. And that's when I became aware that not all doctors were aware of how addictive they could be. Because I asked, look, my my, my husband, my father had problems with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Addiction is in the family. And I don't want to become addicted to this. What I learned later through another doctor friend was that doctors were told then if 
if, if, if your patient is from a certain demographic and they're educated and this woman has a, hus- a husband who's a doctor, it's very unlikely she could become addicted. Okay. And, uh, but I did. And I thought it was, I wasn't going to tell that part at first, but I thought it was important because my sons had lost friends. Oh, my God. And lost, you know, sports partners, people, young people. Who had, they loved. Had, yeah, who they loved and our family loved to this terrible opioid crisis. And I said, if I come out and let them know that it can happen to this anchor woman that comes into your homes every evening, perhaps they'll understand they'll that give, they can get help. And, and, they can get and you got help through a treatment program. I did, yes. back at the Mayo Clinic. And how um, long were you in the clinic for? It was uh, two weeks inpatient, th- uh, one week out. And um, when you got out, how hard was it to reenter uh, normal life and manage your pain? It, it wasn't that hard at all for me, but I know that it is for some other people much more difficult. But I was, I was determined, and, you know, I caught it soon. I caught it and sought help soon, and that's what you have to do. The signs are there. You know, you have to get that person help, or you have to tell yourself, things aren't right, I'm not myself, I, I need help. And get the help. Exactly. Lisa, you're, in every part of the story, your courage, your candor, your insight, um, it's a gift to all of us. Oh, so thank okay. you so, so much happy. for being here today and sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's therapeutic for me still. <laughs> I'm glad we can help. <laughs> and I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter, which is at BizRadio111. And you can follow me at Laura's Arrow. You can also find our past shows at SoundCloud backslash women at work and you can check out business radio highlights from the entirety of the station at businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu backslash best of a special thanks to my guest today lisa thomas laurie and my fantastic producer my great assistant jackie gaffney i forgot to mention patty hall the great producer and our sound engineer tatiana zamis i'm laura zarrow and you've been listening to women at work Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.